You are listening to the Treasury Career Corner, brought to you by the Treasury Recruitment Company. In today's show, you're going to be hearing from Michelle Beckers. Michelle is the former group treasurer for Adidas Worldwide. Today, you get to hear from him about why he believes cash is a fact, profit is an interpretation, and that's all about treasury. He and I talk about why, in order to have a successful treasury career, you have to define for yourself what makes you tick, and then find it in your role or find a position that really resonates with you as an individual. If you listen more towards the end, you'll hear a little bit more about what he describes about that. Now, also, please remember, we recently produced a short Friday podcast. This is where I talk about all of our exciting new plans for the rest of the year. Please have a listen. It's a good one. Um, But as always, that's enough from me. Let's get on with this week's show. Welcome to this week's Treasury Career Corner podcast, where I interview treasury professionals about their treasury careers. Every week I talk to treasurers about how they built their careers, where they are now, and where they see both themselves and the treasury profession going to next. In this week's show, I'm joined by Michelle Beckers. Michelle is Belgian by background, and he's got a treasury career journey that's taken him from originally in Belgium, across to the US, then back over to Germany, and then he returned to the US. So he'll talk us through all those different moves. But originally, he started his career at the Belgian bank KBC in Brussels, where he first discovered Treasury. So, Michelle, if you would, talk us through how you discovered and found the world of corporate Treasury. First of all, Mike, thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, probably initially, I wanted to work for a bank. I ended up working for a bank eventually. I thought working for a bank you know, was a little bit too specialized because at some point in hours, I was really working on one specific product in one specific currency. And I was doing other things as well, but that was the main thing I was doing. And uh, I wanted to expand my horizon. And, and eventually, I joined the corporate treasury because for me, running a corporate treasury of being part of a corporate treasury, you get to do so much more than just dealing in a few instruments. And that's how I got into treasury. And how would you heard about treasury at that stage? Was it something, so you were in the bank and then something you came knocking or they were a client of yours or how did you hear about it? Yeah, cool question. I worked with Treasury people because I was working for the new issue department in the capital markets. And obviously, when you work in capital markets, you make proposals. You make those proposals to Treasury people. So I was already talking to Treasury people. And somehow, you know, I was asked to join a Treasury team of Dow Chemical. And because I was talking to Dow Chemical in terms of financial proposals. And um, and I think we had a, um, a, a good relationship. And that's how the step was made. Eventually, I joined the Dow Chemical Treasury team in Belgium. They had a coordination center, really meaning that they were coordinating all the treasury activities for Europe in Belgium. And that's how I made that step. Tell us about Dow Chemicals. Why were you attracted to that group? Or what did you think of them? And Because you, you were there for a number of years. So, obviously, grew with the company sort of thing. I, and I did my, and I did not join Dow Chemical because they're in the plastics and chemicals business. That is perfectly clear. Um, I, I didn't, I did not like chemistry very much. However, you know, it's something that I would also advocate to young people as well. It, it's the culture of a company, you know, that I think is most important. You know, obviously, you know, what they do is is, is also important, but the culture of the of their company is very important. Now, I liked, you know, the way they looked 
at risk management, the, the way they looked at opportunities. The treasury was very much run as a profit center. I liked that idea at the time. It's not right for everyone. Um, but I liked, you know, the the way you know they looked at risk as an opportunity, not something that should necessarily be reduced at all cost, but it's something that can be optimized. And I like the philosophy, I like the culture at Dow Chemical, which was as entrepreneurial as it gets, and that attracted me very much. Also, obviously, it was an international company with lots of opportunities to have cultural exposures, to work with many people in the world. And I truly enjoyed that. You know, and I worked for Dow Chemical in that Belgium coordination center for five years. I'd like to think I did something right because they asked me to go to the global headquarters. And um, you know, I guess my career kept building from there in 95. And what was the switch like, you know, going from European, Belgium, you know, that's, you know, your background and everything else, moving across to the US, quite a culture difference and things? For me, it probably was not because even as a younger kid, you know, I was spending a lot of time in the United States. My parents, uh, or my, particularly my father, had business connections in the United States. When they told me to learn English, they sent me to the United States to learn English. I still didn't get the American accent. But, you know, it's something that I always was connected to. Um, the United States. And so for me, coming to the United States really didn't feel that different. However, you know, obviously there's a very big cultural difference, uh, in particularly when you compare to Germany. Germany is a very rules-based society. Uh, the US is more of a principles-based society. And um, that probably fits me better, a principles-based society. So the, um, the, the move to the United States for me almost was a natural move. And when you say principles, what what do you mean by that? What do you mean intrinsically by you know principles versus rules? Okay. What's the difference. Well, I have a very simple example. It is just cultural thing, right? Huh. If a German is a pedestrian, you know, and and he needs to cross the street at two a.m. in the morning, and there's a there's a red light and there's no traffic, he will basically wait until he gets a green light to cross you know the street. An American says, you know what? If it's two a.m., there's no traffic coming. I think I'll. You do a little jaywalking here, and and so it's the it's for me it's the flexibility of the mind. You know that's very critical. You know if something doesn't make sense, you know then maybe it needs to change or something needs to be done about it. You know that makes it more sensible. You were very much at the you know the head office of Dow Chemicals. What was the sort of culture like there at that time? I'm sure it's you know all cultures, big companies like that have changed over many years, but. What was it like? Because you were leading financial risk management and you were doing North America and then you became global director. Talk us through those those roles and the culture there. The culture at Dow Chemical was very process-driven. Everyone was working on the same systems. I'll give you an example. It was running on SAP, a specific version. The entire company was running on the same system. No exceptions. When an acquisition was made, everyone you know was forced to work on the same system. So very process-driven because... In the chemical business, you just need to be really good at managing processes. So that kind of attitude also was present in finance. You know, we need to be great process managers. We uh, need to manage global processes. When it comes to, for example, bank account management or cash management, already in those days was unthinkable, you know, that you would have a bank account managed, you know, by a local manager. So truly, everyone needed to be on the same system, the same cash management system, the same forecasting. So there was transparency, there was consistency, and that was very important, you know, to Dow Chemical, you know, to have a great process. Truly a company that was thinking in terms of 
global processes is because it's more important to manage a good process than waste your time in managing exceptions. And I have seen some companies where you know they waste a lot of time in managing exceptions or variations to the process. That, in the case of Dow Chemical, has to give them a lot of credit. You know, is something they were masters at. Now, look through your background. It's one of the things you were talking about, particularly, was that you you did this sort of business investments, and you're very much involved in that, and look at innovation within commodity risk for the group and stuff. What was that right. like back then? I know, you know, again, some of the guys listening are talking about the past. You know, five or ten years, there's been a lot of progress there. But, you know, you're talking back sort of 15, 20 years. You know, so how did you guys approach commodity risk management? It sounds like they're managing a very holistic, wider wider basis sort of thing from the sounds of it. That is exactly, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. You said holistic basis. Enterprise-wide risk management is something that we've talked about about 15, 20 years already. And it's not the enterprise-wide risk management from a compliance perspective where you have a a corporate risk mapping with all the risk owners and, and, and so on. We identify the probabilities of something happening. So it's not a compliance issue, but we really thought enterprise right risk management was very critical, you know, from a strategic perspective. If you're in treasury, you manage risks. And those risks are not just, you know, your next foreign exchange transaction. Those risks, you know, they include capital risk, they include funding decisions, they all have strategic risk, and you make decisions in a probabilistic way because they're in uncertain decisions. And so we really wanted to leverage that type of view across the entire corporation because in the end, you know, treasury is the one that says cash flow is what matters. Cash is king. You've heard that before. Mm. Uh, you hear that cash is a fact, profit is an interpretation. Um, you know, that's, that's treasury. And so preaching that to the rest of the corporation is very important. And it's only logical then, you know, that you include risk management into that same conceptual framework. Commodity risk management was not something that was really in pursuit at Dow Chemical. And, and we figured, well, you know, we manage all these interest rates, foreign exchanges, equity risk, pension, all these risks, but we're not doing anything about commodity risk. And it probably is the biggest risk that we have as a company because we're purchasing feedstock and that eventually those become chemicals and plastics. But it's an enormous, enormous exposure. Um, and so we realized, you know, that, you know, we truly need to do something about our commodity risk management as well. And it's not just in terms of hedging but also in terms of physical plants. And if you don't mind, I think this is important because it makes the connection to the business. Mm. In a chemical process, you crack. You crack feedstocks and then you get ethylene, propylene, and all those wonderful byproducts. You can crack different feedstocks. But if you have what you call a flexi-cracker, you can crack ethylene, you can crack propane, you can crack naphtha. And depending on the value of the byproducts and the cost of your feedstock, you can actually change your feedstock mix. But those plans are much more expensive. So for me, that's like an option. This is like a physical option. You have an option to change feedstock and depending on what the outcome is for your derivatives and the value of your derivatives, your byproducts, your ethylene, your propylene, and so on. Yeah. And so that's for me, is a logical thing where you say, you know what, let's think about this. Is it worth having a flexi tracker, flexi cracker, which costs, you know, say 100 million more than just a regular one feedstock cracker? So that's where all that comes into play is what is the value and proposition of having that type of flexibility and optionality in your physical assets? 
And within that role, you headed up a team of 20 and you had obviously other people report to you across the time. Leadership wise, what was your sort of your management style, would you say? For me, the most important thing is you know, employees need to engage. So the engagement thing, I think, is critical because I don't think if there's a lack of engagement, you can't really get into a certain direction. And so it's always compliance versus engagement. And so for me, the most critical thing was always engagement. How do you get engagement? Is that, you know, by giving people a sense of ownership. And that is done in many different ways, you know, compensation-wise, goal-wise. Um, you know, it, it needs to be consistent. But I think, you know, for me, the most critical part is that really people feel that they own what they are doing. And so engagement for me was the most important thing. If you don't have engagement, you're not going anywhere. Obviously, that's not specific to Treasury. <laughs> that's just, you know, something that, that applies to probably every leadership field. Yeah, because then you moved on to a, a heavy leadership role, heavy lifting role, if you like. So you'd made that because you've been Belgium, you've gone uh, Midland, Michigan, and then said, "Oh, I know. Yes. Let's go. Let's go to Germany." You know, how did that come about? What, what was the? Uh, and uh, as we say in Europe, and the way we we the correct way say is, is Adidas, Adidasler, and everything else. But yes. you joined the group. You know, talk me through that. How did that come about? That's about that opportunity that we talked about. It's really going for the opportunity to develop further. Um, and um, at uh, Dow Chemical, you know, my logical next step was you know, to be the treasurer of the company. I was identified as a candidate, as one of two candidates. Actually, the, uh, the person I stayed at Dow Chemical now is the treasurer of Dow Chemical. And <laughs> so good for him. However, you know, that happened after I had been with Dow Chemical for nearly, uh, with Adidas, sorry, for 10 years later. So at some point, you know, you can't just wait for an opportunity to come your way. The opportunity came up. And I was contacted directly by Adidas. You know, they contacted me directly and say, hey, we're looking for a new treasurer. Um, are you interested? I wanted to be the treasurer of a company, um, you know, preferably Dow Chemical, honestly, because I, had, I was really happy in my role. I was enjoying my life and work. For Dow Chemical, but the opportunity was something that I just could not let pass. I think I would have had regrets the rest of my life if I had not said, you know, this is something that I want to do. I'm also very much into sporting, uh, into sports. Uh, I'm a very active person. Obviously, you know, it's a more interesting and passionate product than chemicals and plastics. And it's just a totally, totally cool company to work for Adidas. You know, they're in Germany. And as I said, I enjoyed living in Germany. And I absolutely loved going to work every single day that I was with Adidas. So that's something that, that I'm very happy with. And how did you make the move back in terms of... Talk about in on on a personal level, you know, you uh, you talked, and that's one of the reasons I explored it. You talked about being principle led, you know, within your leadership style, maybe, and things like that. And then you're joining a German headquartered company, and you're suddenly back into a rules led environment. How was that transition for you? You know, living in Germany, you know, it was definitely rules based. I can spare you all the details. But that's something I truly struggle with for all the nine years that I lived there. Again, that's my life in Germany. My, however, my work in Germany, you know, I don't think was that, you know, uh, rules-based. I think Germans, are, you know, are, you know, they prefer rules. 
But I don't think the company that I was working for was that um, strict, you know, when it came to, you know, rolling out, you know, uh, it was sufficiently flexible. So, so that was, that was fine for me. You know, it worked out. And one of the things, you know, that I, that I thought was truly having a major impact is that we started new things with Adidas. And that is the entrepreneurship, right? We, we basically brought on board new instruments that had never been brought, you know, used before. We put up new structures, new processes, global processes. Uh, we set up a pension fund. So for me, that's all within that spirit of a go explore. If it works, you know, make it happen. And I really enjoyed that. And there's a lot of value that was created with this many different innovations, those new initiatives, you know, that within Treasury. And that eventually led to something that I thought was probably one of the best recognitions I've ever had. Uh, it's not an award, by the way, from some treasury organization because of, you know, best in process management. But the best recognition always comes, I think, for your peers or from your own company. And I was actually asked to take the responsibility for global real estate and global facilities management. And that's a, a pretty large responsibility, but also the same thing, right? If you look at the global portfolio of real estate, you know, whether it's leased properties or own properties, you look at warehouses, you look at office space and retail space and all those things, you know, there's a lot of, you know, decision-making that needs to be done in that space as well. And you can apply some of that same thinking, you know, um, to, to the real estate organization. And I think we've done a lot of things at Adidas that also reduced the cost of real estate. And that's something that I felt a great appreciation for and, and, and also gratitude from my perspective that I was given the responsibility for global real estate and facilities management. We talked to Joel Campbell from H&R Block on actually last week's show by the time this comes out. And one of the things he and I talked about was when he joined H&R Block, he, he, was, he was given a 90-day plan or 90-day window, if you like, to go and learn about the company, go around the group, and then come up with his idea. And he's, he's really grasped that and really enjoyed that. When you got to Adidas, what was the makeup of Treasury? How was it structured? And what, what was your before, during, after? What were you aiming for? You know, you got there, what was the makeup of Treasury? How was it? Was it decentralized? Or, you know, give, give the listeners mm. a bit of an insight. Yeah, well, when I when I joined the Treasury Department, I was specifically told we're not hiring you because we have a crisis in Treasury. That's always a good thing to hear. Yeah. Having said that, when I arrived, you know, I did feel like I made a step back into time because I mentioned earlier with Dow Chemical, we want to be the best. You know, we were, whether it was chemicals or plastic or finance or Treasury, we just wanted to be the best. We wanted to have leading processes, do new things. At Adidas, things have not moved along in the same way. And it was very much a decentralized organization. And, and there was a lot of low-hanging fruit in terms of, for example, cash management. Uh, you know, you're sitting in Germany, but someone in France is managing the French cash and you don't have the visibility of the bank account. So that's low-hanging fruit. So one of the first things that we did is, is really in integrating all the global cash management. And I think you know, it became a very, very good process. The same thing with foreign exchange and all those things. So what was not low-hanging fruit is that realization for cash management, for the value of cash. As I said, you know, cash is king, or you know, cash is a fact, profit is an interpretation. When you work for a large organization, people cannot be responsible for 
the cash at a legal entity level, people in the world, you know, managers in the world, man, people that manage sales, you know, in other parts of the world. And so there's always a little bit of a conflict of interest, you know, between optimizing cash and maybe optimizing another scorecard. And so that was always, you know, a balancing act, you know, between saying, hey, you know, you know, we need to optimize, you know, the long-term cash flow picture of the company versus, you know, optimizing, you know, a scorecard. It's almost a natural conflict, but it's one of the most difficult ones, you know, to um, to solve. Another one as a conflict that Treasury has uh, very often as well is with taxes. And I'll give you an example. If you have, you know, I'm just saying hypothetically, you've got a billion of cash sitting in China, and I'm thinking a lot of companies are having cash sitting in China, um, you know, there's a lot of withholding tax that you need to pay, you know, to the Chinese government if you want to repatriate your cash. And so the treasury guys say, man, well, we have a foreign exchange risk because, you know, we have a billion in cash in Rimimbi and if they lose 10% of its value, well, you know, they might not hit the P&L, but, you know, it's a cash solution because we repatriate less cash. The tax guy may say, well, that deteriorates my tax rate. And so you always have a little bit of these natural conflicts and, and and you need to go into a little bit of a balancing act and need to do some things that make sense. So you had a centralized cash management policy and you were bringing yeah. things together on cash as you talk about that, but you also centralized your FX management and managed that centrally. How did you implement that across the group? Because I know that there's quite a few groups out there trying to you know systematize it and use various th- different things, but what was your ethos? How did you manage those risks? The risks you know, that, that we manage were interesting at Adidas and very particular to Adidas um, because, you know, you're in a product cycle that is based on seasons. So whenever, you know, there's a season, you know, you, you know, for, you know, for whatever, footwear, apparel, you know, you have a new series of products and you do want to lock in the production price. Now, as you know, you know, there's a lot of sourcing in countries, you know, out there in Asia. Um, it's not in dollars, um, and so there's a lot of sourcing that needs to be done in other currencies. So from that perspective, you know, we wanted to lock in those prices or at least keep the business whole and tell the business, tell the salespeople, hey, here are your products for this season. You know, you know what the price is in your local currency, and you want to fix that for them and say, now you go and concentrate on selling as much as you can. So they didn't have to run. The, um, the risk of production costs or the risks of, of the foreign exchange. So the whole idea was is to let the commercial people do what they're best at and um, the financial risks or whatever other risks, the production risks, you know, were basically managed by different teams. So we kept the business whole, if you like. We kept them whole and said, don't worry about it. They were fine with that. You know, so at least, you know, they had a protection for foreign exchange. We did that, what we called billing rates. It's like an internal hedging rate and say, here's your billing rate. No worries to you. We'll take it from here. And so that's an example where the business said, yeah, that makes sense. That's cool. We don't have to worry about foreign exchange, you know, and we'll let you guys handle it. That was a change, you know, because it made sense from from different perspectives. You mentioned there, it's slightly outside of Treasury, but just in general terms, you, you know, how many were in the Treasury team globally? <laughs> it's actually, you know, a, a question I was never able to answer myself, however strange that may sound. You know, we had a corporate treasury team only in Germany, uh, and the treasury team was about twenty people. However, we had finance people in, in you know in many different countries, and they were not reporting directly into treasury. However, some of them might have been doing one hundred percent of their time, dedicating one hundred percent of their time on yeah. treasury. However, 
just the reporting line was into local management and not into the treasury team in Germany. If you include those, you know, I would probably say about 70 to 80 people. Uh, credit was not managed by treasury. I think that's not such a big issue at IDAS either and because there's a lot of um, retail business as well. I've never been able to answer exactly how much time everyone in the world they spent on treasury activities because they were not basically uh, full-time employees reporting to the treasury department. No. But I would say probably 70 to 80 people. Because one of the reasons I ask is, so you're managing that, and then you, when you took over the real estate piece, as you mentioned earlier, that was a huge team of 600 plus, a big leadership okay. role. Again, you know, it comes to your leadership style and things, and you know, some of the guys out there that have lots of different things coming out of them. How, how do you manage all those guys? It was interesting you should ask because I ended up spending more time on real estate than on treasury. Really? And because I believe treasury, yeah, it's interesting because I believe, you know, after all those years, you know, with treasury, you know, we had our processes well defined, well under control, well understood. Um, and, and so there was a team of great professionals I was working with. And I think they were managing very well. And if I were spending 40% of my time on treasury, that would be a good number, I think but it could sometimes drop to 30 or 20%, depending on what was happening on real estate. Real estate was a still, was kind of the world that I stepped into treasury. It was still a world, you know, with very old process, old systems, um, a lot of decision-making in many different places. Um, and so it was a, a lot of change management that was required in real estate. And so I was very occupied, you know, with, defining the new organization, new processes, um, new types of decision-making into real estate as well. Also in terms of um, um, systems and and uh, external support, you know, we really redefined the entire real estate organization. So I'd spend a lot of time on that. You'd been Belgium, Michigan, Germany, and then you decided to make the move back. Or what, what led to you sort of deciding to move back to the U.S.? It's something that almost came in a natural way as well. I have been the treasurer, you know, for a number of years. The responsibility for real estate, you know, in terms of career ambitions, for me, the next natural step, as was the case with Lau Chemical, with me wanting to become the treasurer, I wanted to become the CEO at Adidas. At least some thought I was a very strong candidate. There was a somehow unexpected change in leadership. And you know how it goes, you know, the new leadership, new ideas, new directions. I did not become the next CFO. At that point, you need to make a decision for yourself. To, okay, this is it. This is the end of my career. We have, you know, family, kids, grandkids in the United States. You know, at some point, you need to reprioritize things in your life. And we said, you know what, we really enjoyed this. It's been really great. Um, in terms of career development, that's probably you know the end of the road for me. I don't want to ride just in the sunset and stay around for that reason. And so that's why we made the decision. Probably this is a good time for us to return to the United States and concentrate, you know, on other things, you know, that that are more important. And you made the move back, and you've been doing some consulting stuff as well. Before we sort of explore a bit more about that, I mean, just tell us a bit more about that role. What you've been doing for people. Actually, I've been working with a number of corporations, and it's interesting. They're mostly based in Alaska. Not all of them, but mostly based in Alaska. And, um, you know, you know, I was a stranger may sound to the Belgium, you know, moving to the U.S. I'm officially a resident of Alaska. I have been for many years, um, and I have a lot of connections in Alaska. 
And I know the um, the native corporations, and it's a whole story by itself, but basically the native corporations are investment vehicles. They carry, they own a lot of land, they own a lot of resources, but they also have a lot of investments in other companies. And those native corporations have several ones that have asked me to work with them. It's a, in a whole new world for me. It's absolutely fascinating, you know, what they do. They've asked me to help out, you know, with, their acquisitions because you're looking at acquisitions and some of the due diligence, you know, from a finance perspective, some of the negotiations and so on. And I think, you know, uh, in the roles that I've played in my life, you know, I, I think I can be of great value. And, and, and they keep coming back to me for, you know, more assignments. And I think that's very rewarding for me. And so I worked with the, um, um, you know, with some of these companies, you know, on acquisitions and, and due diligence. And looking back over your your time, you, you've managed teams, you know, from small to large and everything in between. What's your ethos around recruitment? You know, obviously you're on the show hosted by us, Treasury Recruitment Company. What do you like when you're recruiting? Are you looking for a certain fit or is it a blend of technical skills, all of the above? Or what, you know, I'm recruiting for you, say, one day and you say, Mike, this is my ethos around recruitment. What would, it, what would you say it is? For me, the number one thing is integrity. Right. You know, no integrity, there is no opportunity. Um, so I think, you know, the, you know, the, some core values are of absolute critical importance. Um, and uh, I sometimes believe, you know, that, you know, that companies will hire and prioritize other things in a person. Um, but I personally believe integrity in needs to be number one. Then, obviously, you know, there needs to be some type of uh, cultural fit. There needs to be a passion um, because attitude is very important. So there needs to be an attitude, you know, at the company, say, hey, this works. At a sporting goods company, by the way, it's unbelievable the passion I've seen for a brand. I've never seen anything like it at uh, Adidas. You know, everyone wears Adidas. You, you know, we're Nike on campus. Uh, you know, so there's an absolute passion for sports. There's a passion for the brand. So that's something you you look for as well is the passion for the company or the passion for the culture of the company, and then you know I would probably say you know yes you know you get you know your educational background your experience your knowledge those are very important and they they also must have but again none of this is going to work without showing very clear integrity that's always a tricky thing you know you cannot test that you know in an interview for half an hour or an hour. So you have to you know, make a little bit of a leap of faith, you know, when it comes to that. But I think, you know, after you know, you have some experience in recruiting and you ask the right questions, I think you can probably pick up a few things. Um, you know, when a person gives an answer, you know, just to make something up, that doesn't really make a big impression. If you don't know the answer, tell me you don't know the answer. So, you know, or you can actually make a you know an intelligent guess and tell me how you got to that conclusion. That's mm-hmm. fine too. But making something up probably <laughs> is a sign. I go like, mm, okay, I think I need to be. I need to be careful here. So, looking back over your career, you know, twenty plus years, how has Treasury, when you first walked in the door, started doing it? You know, thirty years ago, really. Uh, you know, back in eighty-seven through to now, how has it changed? Where do yeah. you see it going next? Would you say? Well, of course, it's technology, right? It's the digital age. And, yeah. you know, when I started working for Treasury, after, you know, uh, you know, we had, you know, we had some screens, but, you know, the, yeah. the whole connectivity, the speed of things, it was totally different. So you fast forward, everything is global, everything is connected, interconnected. You know, now you have uh, instantaneous payments in Europe, you know, whereby it takes only seconds, you know, to transfer from bank account to the next bank account. You have 
uh, blockchain, which I believe is going to be of so much value, you know, to financial contracts or uh, contractual agreements that not necessarily will provide the next new currency in the world, but it's so much potential value in blockchain as well. Um, and so, obviously, technology has completely changed how the treasury is being handled. And somehow, you know, in treasury, you need to have that confidence. You need to have some type of affinity with technology and the development of the technology, you know, to survive and to do well in treasury. Okay. And then, you know, looking to the future, what what are you looking forward to doing? You've obviously got your company and, you know, you're advising a lot of other companies, but what are you doing next? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a question I ask myself as well, uh, Mike, you know, what do I do right next? Because, you know, I, I think I told you, right, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm still a very active person. I feel very fit. I have a lot of energy and I want to do many things. I know what I don't want to do. And that is what I've always done, <laughs> working for big companies <laughs> with a lot of, you know, uh, uh, you know, sometimes big company politics, you know, everyone knows what those are. You know, everyone will tell you, you know, they want to you know, want to be political, but, you know, it is part of life. And so I probably, you know, find it more satisfying to work with, a, you know, a native corporation company, you know, smaller companies, you know, that mm-hmm. really looking at you, hey, you've got something, you know, that we cannot have access to, you know, because, you know, whatever reason, um, they don't have the resources or the ability, you know, to attract. Um, and so for me, it's been very satisfying, you know, to work, you know, with, with companies, you know, that, you know, have, um, and, you know, a passion for what they do, you know, where, you know, the, the big company politics, you know, don't really play a role, but there's not always that conflict of scorecards, you know, that needs to be managed because there's always that as well. So for me, it's been, you know, a direction that I really enjoy. Um, I, you know, could imagine myself, you know, working full time, but that's not really the most important thing. You know, the most important thing for me is is that I do something, you know, that is, you know, of value. I add value. I can be of value to companies, uh, whether that's through a contracting agreement, you know, uh, whatever it is, uh, full time. You know, it doesn't matter. Um, that's the direction I've chosen to do. So I know what I don't want to do. Uh, I'm open to other new things as well, as long as there's some new aspect to it you know it gets your attention i'm open to that yeah. yes okay let's uh i want to wrap up today's show and you know we spoke about this before if anyone does want to reach out to michelle we'll put his linkedin profile in the show notes so you can connect with him and you know maybe talk about treasure matters or some of those ideas and some of those you know roles you might have or people might want to talk to you about but if someone looks back at your profile, they're going to see this really great career. You've come up through Dow Chemicals, financial risk management, amazing. And then you were the group treasurer till recently of you know Adidas. And someone, you know, earlier in the years of their career, they go, oh, that's what I want to work for. You know, we're currently doing some work with Nike and, you know, it's a great brand. And, you know, people go, oh, yeah, I love this. But, you know, there's some great treasury learning to be done there as well. With yourself, what would you say, you know, and looking at Adidas and it gave you a lot of stuff, but... You know, if they wanted, someone wants to do the same as you, what, what final words of advice would you give them, as it were? Yeah, the thing, you know, when someone starts a career, 
is something that I haven't really done myself is, you know, look at the full scope of responsibilities. It's not a given, you know, that you need to work for a specific company, you know, that it's probably in, in, in proximity of where you grew up. Open your scope of reality, you know, expand your horizon. Think about all the opportunities out there, you know, and, you know, there's, there's large companies, there's small companies, privately held, publicly held, uh, for non-profit maybe smaller initiatives, private equity. And and I think a lot of young people, and I'm including myself, their scope is too narrow, you know, what they want to envision. But define for yourself what really makes you tick. And then you're very lucky, you know, if you find a company, you know, that actually is exactly meeting your personality, your attitude. And so I would probably say, you know, for, for younger people, Look around and define for yourself, you know, what makes you tick. It's not necessary, you know, that you need to find, you know, the big corporation, you know, um, you know, with the international uh, setup. And there are other companies out there, you know, that I think provide very, very nice opportunities, very nice challenges as well. To so find someone that really resonates with yourself as a person, I would say. Absolutely. Right on. Right on. What a great way to wrap up. So find somewhere that resonates with you. Nice little, uh, we'll, we'll put that as one of the catchphrases on one of the uh, uh, pictures as well that people will see. So, um, Michelle, thank you for your time today. I think it's been a really good one. I think we, you know, it's good because you know, some of the weeks we bounce around different areas, but I think with yourself, it's just got this natural flow of your career. So I really appreciate your time you spent with uh, me and with the listeners today. And as I say, if you want to connect with Michelle, connect to him via LinkedIn and, you know, hopefully you'll have some other interesting stories to share. Wonderful. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Cheers. Cheers.